Make your way, if you will, to Genesis 31. We've come to Genesis 31, and we have before us again something of a marathon, lengthy passage of Scripture, which all of the conventional wisdom would say to avoid talking about in a preaching service, but I think it's a worthy passage for us to consider here in this setting. And if we will endure together and walk quickly and carefully, I believe there's much for us to gain from this passage. And really bringing together not only this passage, Genesis 31, but this entire sojourn in Haran by Jacob. From our historical gallery, we have been observing the life of the patriarch Jacob over these past few weeks. We come to this 31st chapter and we find Jacob here still immersed in Haran. Chosen by God to succeed Abraham and Isaac as the inheritor of Canaan, chosen by God as the next father and the promised offspring, Jacob leaves Canaan to find a wife in Haran among his mother's people and out of reach of his murderous brother Esau's designs. For 20 years now, Jacob has been here. 20 years. 20 years he has sojourned in Haran, shackled to, dominated by his grasping and scheming and manipulative uncle Laban. But the hope that increasingly fuels Jacob in Haran is the promise that God gave him while he was leaving Canaan. At Bethel, God promised to be with Jacob, and he promised to bring him back to this land, this land of promise. And so during this painful and at times horrific ordeal in Haran, we witness God working providentially to bless his chosen son and to fulfill through Jacob God's promises to Abraham. Now let's remember this account of Jacob's immersion in Haran is not wasted ink. His experience is here for what reason? It is here to teach us, to teach us the ways of God with his people. To teach us how we as his people are to relate to him and to respond to our circumstances which he providentially designs for our lives. We too, you too, like Jacob, have your own immersion experiences, periods in our lives, sometimes long periods, where we are immersed in frustrating, painful, discouraging ordeals. A miserable job or school situation. It might be a family conflict, a financial burden, a heavy responsibility you can't get out from under it. A past mistake that haunts every day of your life, a squandered opportunity, a painful loss, a hateful or controlling person who dominates you or hurts you in some way. What is your immersion experience? What will be your future immersion experiences? There is encouragement for us in this passage. Encouragement for us in this account of Jacob's life. Not because our periods of immersion are just like his. Not because your ordeal will be exactly like Jacob's. And certainly your story will not turn out just as his turns out, but we save, serve the same God. And that God loves you in the same way as he loved Jacob. His intentions for Jacob, his concern for Jacob is no different than his concern for you. Because Jacob, as we have noted, did not earn God's electing love. Jacob received that love from the Lord. And if you know Christ as your personal Savior, God loves you with all the intensity that he loved Jacob. 
And so we serve this same God. We follow this same Lord. We know that He runs our lives as He orchestrated the life of Jacob. So there's much for us here to encourage us in our ordeals. Little ordeals, short ordeals, or long and bitter. Jacob is a model for us. He's a test case to see how God works in individual lives and how he orchestrates the affairs of our world. We need to understand Genesis 31. We need to see God in this way. There are people with visions of God that are very twisted and wrong. This is the God of Scripture, working in the mundane, working behind the scenes, working to bless his people in the midst of sin and trouble and discouragement and trial. That's the God of Scripture. Now let's review at this point, what has God been doing with Jacob? We have a 20-year period of life. We've kind of focused here in the last three weeks upon this 20-year period. You remember it breaks into seven, seven, and six. The first seven years, Jacob works for Laban in lieu of a dowry for beautiful Rachel. The star-struck Jacob hardly notices those first seven years. They fly by so quickly for his beloved Rachel. He noticed the next seven years, however, very much so. You remember the switch of Leah for Rachel on the wedding night. Jacob is shocked by the deception of his father-in-law, and he is stuck working another seven long years, really, again, just for Rachel. But now he has two wives, and in this second seven-year period, his two wives and two concubines give birth to 11 and possibly 12 children. Very hectic time for Jacob in his life, immersed here in Haran. A time of competition between his wives, particularly Rachel and Leah. Seven years for Rachel. Seven years for Rachel and building a family. And in this second year, seven year period, these wives bringing forth these children, we now see the, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob that they would have a great offspring. Remember, the family line fans out here with Jacob. Abraham, one son. It's Isaac, though he has others. Isaac, one son, though he has another. It's Jacob. But with Jacob, there are 12 sons born, and the family line now begins to really take root. But how will Jacob support this massive family? That's what chapter 30 is all about. In the last six-year period, God leads providentially for Jacob to bring in much wealth to sustain his family, and to provide a means back to Canaan. Remember chapter 30 and verse 43 as we ended out that chapter. Verse 43, In this way the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maidservants and menservants and camels and donkeys. Remember Jacob coming to Haran. He doesn't appear to have much of anything. He may even have walked, we're not sure, but he now, now has much wealth, and it is an evidence of God's blessing. It is an evidence to us. If we would read the text very quickly, we would say, hey, wait a minute. This is Abraham, blessed by God with immense riches. This is Isaac, blessed by God with immense riches. This is Jacob. How do you figure Jacob into this equation? He comes into Haran, and for 14 years, he's essentially a slave to Laban. And now here he is, only six years later, with great wealth, a family, the wealth to support that massive family. One more problem. He's not in the land. God has promised an offspring. He can see now, after 20 years in Haran, how that promise will be fulfilled. But he's not in the land. 
and, and Laban will never let Jacob return. And so once again, we see the providence of God at work. God promised to get Jacob back to Canaan. But does God airlift him there? Does he just take him back without trial, without difficulty? Not at all. God works providentially, not supernaturally. And we speak and praise God for his supernatural acts. We believe as a church that God, it's in our document of our doctrinal statement, we believe in supernatural works of God. But that is not how God typically works. That's why they're supernatural. They're unusual. Miracles don't take place every day. Miracles are unique events. But God is never on the sidelines. He works providentially through the events and the circumstances of life. And that's what he does here with Jacob. Watch God work here. Watch God in the details of Jacob's life as he runs, first of all, runs away from Laban in the first 21 verses of this chapter. Jacob runs away from Laban. The flight is planned here beginning at verse 1. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. Laban had ridden Jacob's back to great prosperity. And he could not have been happier about the whole situation. He thought Jacob was just great because Jacob was making him rich. But when Jacob himself started to get wealthy, the picture changed a little bit. In fact, because of the unique contract that Laban and Jacob had established back in chapter 30, we looked at last week, Jacob began to grow wealthy at Laban's expense. And Laban and his sons grew increasingly resentful of that turn of events. Jacob had never felt loved by Laban, but he had always felt wanted by Laban. Now that is changing. But it's not only this negative atmosphere that sends Jacob back toward Canaan. We notice in verse 3, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives. I will be with you. It is God's call. There's a clear parallel here with Abraham's call. Abraham, you remember, left Ur of Mesopotamia, but he stopped for a considerable period of time at Haran, where his father dies. There is a, a departure of Abraham from Haran going to Canaan. There's a departure here now of Jacob taking the same route back to Canaan, to the same land. It is a connection between Abraham and his grandson Jacob. Jacob now called by God on a holy mission. This is not just a disgruntled nephew taking off. This is now a promise from God, a word from God, a command from God, and Jacob takes this command and leaves. But if he is going to go back to the land with his offspring, he must talk with his wives. It will not work. Now, it would not have been out of the question in this, this day for this to happen, but it will not work for him to steal his wives, to just take them against their will. He can pull that off physically with his servants and the like, but he cannot pull that off with his father-in-law. His wives must come willingly, or he will be taken as a thief, as a kidnapper, and will be hauled back to Haran. Listen carefully now as Jacob makes his appeal. You'll notice something very different about Jacob. The Jacob that we looked at last week in chapter 30 and that we've looked at to this point in the text 
in my thinking, is not the Jacob that we find here in chapter 31. You look at it as he gives this speech. What is it that's different about Jacob? We notice his appeal to his wives beginning at verse 4 of chapter 31. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. That would be a private place of conversation and also a visual demonstration to them of his great prosperity. Verse 5, he said to them, I see that your father's attitude toward me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. That uh, may well be a figure of speech there. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. Verse 8, if he said the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. Are they going to buy it? Jacob admits that, let's stop there for a moment at verse 10. Let's, Jacob admits that against Laban's cheating and scheming ways, God has intervened and has blessed him. Something has happened to Jacob. Jacob acknowledged God at Bethel. He really didn't have much choice. Remember, at Bethel, God appears to him in a vision. He's there. He sees the angels ascending and descending those steps into heaven. He doesn't have much of a choice but to acknowledge God. But outside of the angry comment to Rachel in chapter 30 in verse 2, Jacob is presented to this point in the text as effectively oblivious to God in Haran. But here in this speech, Jacob decidedly purposefully, even articulately, gives glory to God for what has happened in his life. Jacob giving glory to God. This is a different Jacob. This is a transformed Jacob. We have seen him to this point in the text as a manipulative, scheming, deceiver. Now, Jacob, leading his family, speaking to his wives, is bringing glory to to God. He takes no credit for the wealth that he's gained in these last six years, despite all of his efforts in chapter 30. He gives glory to God alone. Now in verse 10, Jacob recounts then the theological background to chapter 30. We're not taking the time to read it for those that might not be familiar with it, but in chapter 30, Jacob's flocks, he takes the mottled sheep and goats, the off-color animals, they become his. And God, in a unique work of providence, genetically, is leading to many of these flocks being mottled rather than the, the monochrome that would be a type of color that would be normal. How does Jacob interpret that whole scene there? And remember in chapter 30, he did a lot, at least he thought mystically, to make this happen. But how does he now interpret it? Verse 10. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked and speckled or spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. In chapter 30, all we see is the horizontal. 
But here in chapter 31, Jacob gives the interpretation. There's a vertical element in all of this. In his recounting, we learn why he ever suggested to Laban in the first place this contract of taking the mottled sheep rather than the monochrome sheep. Jacob may, I think here, possibly collapse two dreams into one. The dream that he had about these uh, animals and literally leaping from behind as they're mounting the mate in the trough. And he sees in this, in this dream, this vision, and that gives him the idea to, give, to, to enter this contract with Jacob. The second dream that he seems to bring in here is the one that calls him back to Canaan. So he brings these two dreams before his wives. He explains that it is God who is in all of this. God has providentially enriched him at their father's expense. It is an articulate, impassioned, God-centered speech. And it constitutes an appeal to his wives to follow. Will they understand? Verse 14, then Rachel and Leah replied, Do we have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever God has told you. They don't really sound like happy campers, do they? <laughs> They're bitter, bitter women because of this man, Laban, and his grasping ways. But isn't this an amazing thing? Leah and Rachel agree. They agree. It would, be hard, it would not be hard to think that these competing wives would never agree on anything as we go through chapter 30. But on, on this, they are united. Love your sister? Absolutely not. Leave your father behind? Let's go. We're ready. They agree on their father. Their unity against Laban is a strong commentary on Laban's character, or lack thereof, and it is a confirmation of Jacob's misuse at Laban's hands. Turns out Laban has not only been manipulating and robbing from Jacob, his son-in-law, he's been robbing from his daughters as well. Legally speaking, in that day, the bride price or the dowry would be given to the father who gave his daughters, but uh, that price then, it was kind of a payment from the male, uh, male's family, the husband's family, is kind of a payment for this father raising this daughter, but they, he would, they would pay him this money. But it was, it was sometime, in some places at some times actually law that this father would then give a portion of that dowry back to his daughter. So I think this is what Rachel and Leah seem to be saying is that Laban's not kept up his part of the bargain. He has not given them any money from the dowry. In fact, he's consumed it. They look at the 14 years that their husband has given to caring for Laban's flocks and they know this about their husband, that he's a hard worker. He's a diligent man. He has gone the extra mile to care for their sheep, probably not like their brothers did, not like any of the servants of Laban cared for his sheep. Jacob's efforts have served to enrich Laban, and they should be benefiting financially from that, but they're not. Laban has consumed everything that might belong to them. So we have two Syrian wives, both willing to follow Jacob back to Canaan. In verse 17, the flight is commenced. Verse 17, then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels, and he drove all his livestock ahead of him, along with all the goods he had accumulated in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Let's stop there just for a moment. He arrived on foot. He leaves in style. Camels bear witness to his wealth. The reference here to the camels also serves as foreshadowing in this event. Now, 
verse 19, Moses is going to reach back, I think, in time just a little bit and insert a crucial piece of the storyline. Verse 19, when Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Sheep shearing times, annual events, spring of the year, took many of the men away and for a long period of time, and it permitted Jacob to flee from Laban, and it permitted Rachel to get into his tent and steal his household gods. Little household idols, kind of think of them as shelf items, different sizes, but these kinds of household gods were obviously little, little gods, little things. Some of them could be very... Uh, large the size of a, of a human being or even larger but these are just those little household gods she steals them why no idea text never says might be superstition she might want them for safety and travel we'll see later it is foreshadowing to some degree because the gods will need to be put away and jacob makes this speech in the land of canaan later that's all down the road does she do it out of spite could certainly be. Does she do it out of greed? They could be sold. They were usually made of some precious metal. They could possibly be sold. Uh, we don't know why she takes it. All we know is that she does take it, and it is foreshadowing of the events that will follow. These idols will play a pivotal role in this narrative also. The true God of heaven will use these worthless idols to deliver Jacob from Haran. It's an amazing turn of events in his providence. Now think about it. Idols, are they God's will? No. Stealing, is that God's will? No. But these idols that Rachel steals are going to be the key to delivering Jacob from Haran. I think there is also an intentional sense of irony that's introduced here. As Hamilton writes, well, the ancient reader would not miss the sarcasm of this story. For here is a new crime, Godnapping. It is a way of looking at, Jacob's, or at Laban's idols and laughing at them in this story. And they'll be laughed at throughout. Watch. It gets worse. But God guides and enriches, protects and prospers, and now delivers Jacob. Laban's gods, by contrast, are vulnerable to theft. They can be picked up and taken where they do not want to go. So with those gods in hand, with all of his goods in hand in the, in the uh, caravan... He sets his family on camels and takes off running. Verse 20, Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him he was running away. There is here what misses us in English, a very important phrase. And it is really not that Jacob deceived Laban, though that's a pro an appropriate way of understanding it. But the Hebrew reads that Jacob stole the heart of Laban. The point is, Rachel steals Laban's gods, Jacob steals Laban's heart. That means he steals his soul. He takes away everything that means anything to him. His gods are gone. His children are gone. His livelihood, the one who has made him wealthy, is gone. Jacob steals Laban's heart. Verse 21. So he fled with all he had in crossing the river, the Euphrates. He headed for the hill country of Gilead. Picture in your mind the north or, or the southern end of Galilee and the northern height top of Dead Sea, those two major seas in the land. On the Transjordan side, on the other side of Jordan, is this hill, hill, uh, the hills of Galilee, or the mountainous region of Galilee. So we're in the Transjordan area, between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea to the south. It's about a 350 to 400 mile trek. So this is, not, this is a flight that it's going to take some days. 
So Jacob runs away from Laban. The text turns now at verse 22. Laban runs after Jacob. And the intensity begins to build. On the third day, verse 22, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So we have here the, the, the uh, news that Jacob has left and the words pursue and caught and a number of other words as we go through will be laden with military implications. In other words, get the idea here. If you'd read these Hebrew words, you'd get the idea right away. Laban is mad. He's upset. He's coming after Jacob. Jacob is in big trouble. But God does not slumber, as we see in verse 24. So while Laban slumbers, God reveals to him in a dream, don't say anything good or evil to Jacob. That doesn't mean don't talk to Jacob, I don't think. But it means don't make any threats, don't say anything evil, and don't try to sweet talk him to return or something like that. Don't say anything good or evil. He's going to do what he's going to do, and Laban, you're not going to get in the way. This is the dream and the intervention of God in this account. Laban reaches Jacob in verse 25. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him, and Laban and his relatives camped there too. Get the picture here of two armies camped at night, ready for war in the morning. I, I realize there aren't that many soldiers, but there are, uh, there are servants that would be prepared to defend and for battle. They would bear swords, and these two armies, so to speak, are camped this night in the same region. Laban runs after Jacob. We find then thirdly that Laban and Jacob enter dispute, beginning at verse 26. Then Laban said to Jacob, obviously the next day he confronts him, What have you done? You've deceived me. You've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send away, you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps? I don't know if Jacob dared to roll his eyes there, but he might have. Verse 28, you didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you, but last night the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, and, and i kind of saying, I guess, in a sense, and I'd really like to say something bad if I could, but I can't. My hands are tied. You need to understand that. And verse 30, now you have gone off because you long to return to your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Laban actually uses in verse 26 the very words that were used of Jacob. You have stolen my heart, literally. Laban is, of course, delusional. He accuses Jacob of stealing away his daughters who have fled with their husband quite willingly. He further claims to be the consummate family man that just wanted to have a party as they were parting. Well, his parties always turn out to be misery for everyone else, Jacob remembers. But Laban does accuse Jacob here of stealing his gods. And on this accusation, there's something there. There's something there. It carries some weight. We have to get this. It, Idols mean nothing to us, and thankfully they don't. But in this day, that's not the case. If Jacob gets caught with these idols, it's, it's over. 
he's heading back to Haran as a slave. He's in big trouble. As the head of his clan, he will take full responsibility for this. And Rachel, in the law codes of the day, at least some that are later, that, have, that are extant, that exist, that have been discovered, she would be killed. You don't steal someone's family gods. This is not a minor theft. And the father says, oh, you bad little girl, give me those back and let's go on our way. This is a capital offense. Rachel is in big trouble. Jacob is in big trouble, and he does not know it. Jacob uh, defends himself here, verse 31. Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. We could read that something like this. I have not taken your daughters from you by force, but I have every reason to believe that you would take them from me by force. But as for your idols, says an angry Jacob, verse 32, but if you find anyone who has your gods, he shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me, and if so, take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. He does not have a clue of how close this whole thing is to coming to an end and how close God's prom what jeopardy God's promise would appear to be in at this point. Well, Laban investigates. Verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maidservants, but he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, so in other words, the point up above is he goes into all the tents, but after Leah's tent, he goes into Rachel's tent. Will he find the idols? Will Jacob's flight end here, right on the verge of the promise? I mean, think about this. This is where Moses was, essentially. On the other side of Jordan, looking in, that's where Jacob is right now. Is he going to make it? Is he going to get in? Or will he be caught? He will be held responsible. Rachel will be taken and possibly killed for this event. Will Laban find the gods? They're there. They're in the camp, and Jacob doesn't know it. Verse 34, Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle, and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent, but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So he searched, but could not find the household gods. Camel saddles. Get a picture here of a box. A box that they kind of put on top of the camel and strapped it on. And on that, under that box was a cavity where they would store things as they traveled. She has taken this saddle off the camel. One of the servants has taken it off the camel, put it in the tent, and she is sitting on this saddle. As you're traveling, it's about probably the best seat you can find. So she's sitting there on this camel saddle. In the cavity underneath her where she sits are these stolen gods. And here is her father... The Hebrew word is literally groping, feeling. That is, he's touching everything in her tent, turning up all of the clothes and blankets or whatever there is in there. He's turning it all upside down to find if they're hidden anywhere, and he's gone through their entire tent, and he comes to her person. And she says, please understand, I like the Hebrew phrase here a little bit better, but we're helped here in our English translation, but the custom of women is upon me. Well, as one has offered, if it was uh, her mother, she would have checked. She wouldn't have been taken back by that at all. And she might have even thought, hey, 
If that's the case, what are you sitting on and seeing the saddle there and putting two and two together? Laban apparently is embarrassed enough by the situation that he kind of loses his mind in his search and goes on to another tent or at least leaves, and he leaves her alone. It comes that close to Rachel being discovered and Jacob's flight ending. And several have noted as well that probably as the ancient Hebrews read this text, they, are, they do not miss the irony that Laban's gods can be cleaned off a shelf and taken away against their will. They would not miss the irony either that Rachel is sitting on top of these gods in her condition. This is a way of speaking of their contemptibility and their utter meaninglessness and helplessness. Now, we don't know if, if it's a ruse on her part or if this was actually her condition, but at any rate, she sits on top of the gods who cannot yell out for freedom and find their master. They are absolutely worthless, while the God of Jacob guides and steers and directs to deliver his son right on time. Failing in his search... Uh, by the way, I should probably add here, it's, it may be obvious, but Rachel would have been required by custom to stand and to acknowledge her father's presence. She says, please uh, overlook that because standing would have revealed the uh, saddle beneath her more evidently and drawn attention to it. So she puts her father off, embarrasses him possibly to a degree where he doesn't even think about the saddle. He just wants to kind of get away from her and, uh, and not to bother her any longer. And so that is what happens, and she is freed. Well, Jacob defends himself now very uh, vehemently. Verse 36, Jacob was angry, and he took Laban to task. What is my crime, he asked Laban. What sin have I committed that you hunt me down? Now that you have searched through all my goods, what have you found that belongs to your household? Put it here in front of your relatives and mine, and let them judge between the two of us. You have nothing. Jacob contends, show me the evidence that I've stolen. Here's our relatives. They'll serve as judge and jury. You're accusing me. Put down your evidence of what I have stolen. And as one puts it so well, one commentator, 20 years of frustration burst out into a diatribe of ferocious intensity at this point. Verse 38, you can try to just imagine what Jacob has been through for 20 years. And now this man has accused him falsely. Verse 38, I have been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. Miscarrying sheep, that would have been because of Jacob's skillful work as a shepherd, to keep them from miscarrying, to guide them along to full term and to birth the children or the, or the lambs. And secondly, I've not eaten the rams of the flock. That was a shepherd's privilege to eat the rams. He needed to give evidence of that, but it was his privilege to eat the rams of the flock as he's out in the fields with nothing to eat, possibly. Verse 39, I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. When a shepherd went out, any animal that was torn by beasts would, be, would not be his responsibility if he could provide evidence. If he could bring the carcass back, it was obvious that, a, that, a, that a, uh, an animal, a predator had torn that animal, had killed that animal, he would not have to pay for that. However, next phrase, 39, I bore the loss myself and you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. That was in that time, if the shepherd allowed something to be stolen, he had to pay that back. 
So he's saying, I, I went out of my way to do what was beyond my duty, and I fulfilled my duty. Verse 40, this was my situation. Think about it. Try to feel this a little bit. Try to put yourself there. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime. We don't even know that kind of heat in this, in this country. It's a consuming, horrible heat. And the cold at night. And sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for the 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages 10 times. Again, the Hebrew reads the idea probably of over and again. Time and again, you changed my wages. Verse 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would, have surely, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. This was no easy period in Jacob's life. It was a hard, hard time. Laban, of course, just does not get it, plain and simply. We have here this dispute, and now Laban and Jacob establish a treaty of peace, and we notice that Laban is as confused as ever. He answers Jacob, verse 43, The women are my children, or my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these children of mine or about the children they have borne? Come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let, us serve as a, and let it serve as a witness between us. Laban remains blind to the facts, foolishly sees the world from his angle. Everybody caters to him. Everything he claimed belonged legitimately to Jacob, but he said it was his. He's a domineering, grasping, manipulative man all the way through. But note the providence here of God. Possibly, I, would, I, I think this is the case, that possibly, very likely, he is somewhat embarrassed by the fact that he has not found the gods in Jacob's things. He has checked everything, he thinks, and he's not found them. And somewhat embarrassed by that, he is forced to consider the promise of God, or the word of God to him concerning Jacob, and he uncharacteristically backs down. In this section, this is not the Jacob we've known, and right here, this is not the Laban we know. He uncharacteristically offers to establish a pact, a treaty with Jacob, and to let him go. This is something he did not set out to do. He set out to bring Jacob back. He set out to rescue his daughters, we think depending on if he's lying or not or deceived or not. But one thing you can be sure about, he went to get those gods, to find out who took them and to bring the thief to justice. He did not set out to do this, but God appeared to him in a dream. In verse 44, he then says, come, let us make a covenant, or literally cut a covenant. By initiating the treaty, Laban recognizes Jacob's right to independent status. He concedes the argument to Jacob. He essentially admits his fault. Verse 45, so Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagger, Jagger Sahudutha, and Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it was called 
Galid. It was also called Mizpah because he said, May the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. Let me just very quickly summarize here. This pillar and this pile of rocks are monuments marking the treaty between these two. They both call it the heap of witness. But Jacob uses the Hebrew language of Canaan and Laban uses the Aramaic language of his home, Syria. Both languages were used in this hill country of Gilead. Of Gilead. So there, he's, he's siding there, he's identifying here with Canaan and with the promised land, Jacob is. These stones commemorating their contract, but notice in verse 49 that this is, these are words of mistrust. The word mispah is often misused in the English uh, speaking world as a place of some beautiful idea of God watching between two people. This is not a beautiful idea. This watching God between them is a matter of mistrust. Laban is saying, I can't trust you when you're not in sight. I can't trust you not to return to Haran and take away everything that I have. So may God monitor between you and me. May he monitor that you keep this treaty. To get Jacob to agree not to marry, we see then verse 50, if you mistreat my daughters or if you take any other wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is witness between you and me. If Jacob took other wives, they would have a potential of taking from the estate, from Jacob's estate, and thus financially hurting Rachel and Leah. So Laban, ever the businessman, says that's part of the contract here. You're not going to take any other wives. How ironic that Laban would worry about Jacob harming his daughters financially when that is what he has been doing over the last number of years. He's deluded by his sin. Verse 51, Laban also said to Jacob, Here is this heap and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. The Hebrew text here, I think, would be better translated, may the God, capital G, of Abraham and the God, small g, of Nahor. There's two gods here, just as there's two heaps, there's two meals, there's two lot of things through here as you go through, but there's two, also two gods. The God of Nahor is not the God of Abraham. There's two gods bearing witness to this contract and to this treaty here. May they see, says Laban, well, Jacob, on his part, he's not having any plans to head back to Haran anytime soon. Matter of fact, it's probably pretty much the case that he will never, ever consider that again. He wants nothing to do with Laban. Laban's fear is his own fear. At verse, at, at, um, verse 53, the second part of the verse we read, So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac, that is the dread, the awe, the majesty of his God, Verse 54, he offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. The sacrifice would be a way of sealing the contract and the meal would be a way of eating that sacrifice and relating together. In fact, they spend the night there together. The two camps that were up against each other for war now celebrate a contract of peace. And so in verse 55, we read what we've been looking for for a long time, what Jacob has been looking for for a very long time. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left 
and returned home. It was over. The long immersion in Haran, the oppression by Laban, the sojourn in another land, it was all over. Jacob and his family were free at last. Laban was gone. Haran was behind them. It was now time to enter Palestine after a 20-year absence. By the way, to enter into another crisis. But this one was done. You ever heard athletes say that after a great victory? They all say the same thing. I think they give them a script to read. But they ask them, you know, what do you think about the next team? What do they all say? Oh, we'd like to kind of think about this one for a while, right? We want to celebrate for a while. Jacob's heading into another battle. But right now, it's time to stop and say, it's over. I'm free at last. 20 years in Haran, and I'm free. We could spend much time on what we learn here. And perhaps we should have allowed more for that. But let me very quickly take you, if you could just shift gears for a little bit here again and let's think let's meditate what we see here first of all i think applies to god's redemptive plan do you see the wide angle lens of god's redemptive plan what is he doing we see here a tremendous parallel between abraham and isaac with jacob jacob's fathers both gained great wealth and equality with the philistines you remember the contracts with abimelech that's what we have here With the Philistines, there was peace established by Abraham and Isaac. And now with the Aramaeans, there is peace in the person uh, of the establishment with Laban. Abraham is called, secondly, a parallel. Abraham is called out of Haran to Canaan. And so is Jacob, who leaves now, Abraham leaving with no son. Jacob trudges through the same route to get back to Canaan with 11 of the 12 patriarchs that will fulfill the promise of an offspring, and he heads back to the land by God's grace. We have here also in God's big redemptive picture a foreshadowing of Israel leaving Egypt. Jacob leaves essentially as a slave of Laban. He's free, and we have a parallel there of Israel leaving Egypt. They're free, and as we take that line further, it leads ultimately back to the land, to the people in the land, and to the Son, a sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who will die in that land, a son of Judah, to bear the sins of the world. The nations blessed through that Son. This is what God is doing. This is what God is doing in the mundane details of Jacob's life. He's leading Jacob to the land, and he's leading eventually to the sacrifice of Christ there in the promised land. Let's look, though, at the narrow angle of redemption's plan. We need to see in this text that God is in the details. If you are a believer, you can have the confidence that God works the details for you. Not only can you have such confidence, you need to actively see God in the details of your life, even in your immersions into trouble. Is there an individual that's causing you a lot of trouble right now? A situation that's eating you up. God is in the details. He is not on the sidelines. He is not on vacation. He's there in the details. He's not morally responsible for anything that is happening to you that is sinful. 
but he is working in your circumstances to accomplish what is good. God does not condone theft. He does not condone idolatry. He does not condone deception or anger. But in all of those wicked details, God is actively at work leading Jacob back and using the sins of people to put Jacob in the land where God wants him. He doesn't airlift him there. He leads him providentially through trial to the place where he wants him. And that's how he's going to lead in your life. He will. It's just an issue of do we acknowledge it? He will. If you belong to him, this is how he loves and this is how he works and this is how he leads a second point, let me just consider briefly, not only God's plan of redemption, but God's relationship to sinners. This passage teaches us something about God's justice. Nothing passes God's nose. Nothing. It's a scary thought, but it's a real and true thought. We reap what we sow. We see Jacob in contrast to chapter 24. Chapter 24, where there was that faith-dependent, relationship with God that sought a wife for Isaac on Abraham's part. We see here a Jacob who is not buying into God as he leaves for Haran, and we see him getting a wife as well, but through misery and trial and trouble. He pays for his deception with his brother Esau. He, the deceiver gets into the family of a deceiver, and Jacob gets beat on for 20 years. His sin has found him. He's not morally, God is not morally responsible for what Laban does to him, but he leads him there. And Laban makes sure, by God through Laban, makes sure that Jacob reaps what he has sown. And Laban reaps what he has sown. His greed ends up robbing him, as one has said. Rachel escapes capital offense, but not for long. She doesn't have many years left. She'll die, too. Now, do we get the feeling of God in heaven waiting to bat us on the head when we do what is wrong? Not at all. But we have a God in heaven who lovingly guides and directs us, but who does not overlook sin. And I, as I learn to discern the circumstances of my life, I see so often in the trials that I face connections to where I've done the same thing to someone else. Where I've, done this, I've committed the same sin previously. And I just realize more and more the justice of God's ways with us. Does that mean that those who suffer greatly have sinned more than those who suffer little? Not at all. Not at all. That takes us to the third point, and that is God's promise. What is his promise to his people? Well, to Jacob it was, I'll bring you back to this land. Chapter 28, verses 13 through 15. We won't take the time to read it now, but he says, I am with you. I am your God. I will bring you to the land. I will bring you where I'm going to bring you, and I will bless you. And we have that promise. If you know God as your Savior, if you know Jesus Christ in a personal way, your sins have been forgiven by him, you can make that same claim because God has issued his word that he loves you and he will labor to bless you. This is what needs to drive us through any ordeal that we face. So often Christians are driven by escape from the trial. What key can I find? What new thing can I do? What, who can I talk to? What can happen? What, what can change my circumstances? That's not always an illegitimate concept, but too often it becomes the idol. 
in the whole equation. We want everything to go our way. What we need to be is future-oriented, future-looking, to look to the promises of God, to believe that He is and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him, to know on the road ahead there is the blessing of God, whatever this day may bring. And it, too, is filled with its own blessing. So point your nose forward. That's what I hear in Jacob's story. Point your nose forward. Look to the promises of God. Look ahead to His promises, and inevitably, they will result in spiritual growth. You will change. If the circumstances of life are left to eat you up, they will eat you up. But if you look forward in faith and can see ahead to the promises of God, the circumstances of your life can mature you. This passage is a call to faith. It's a call to believe God that he will bless, that he will lead, that he will prosper, that he knows what he's doing in your life, and he will bring things to the right conclusion. And so here's what I learned from Jacob, and I'm so thankful for this lesson. It takes a while to get here. But the issue is not the length of your immersion in trial. It's not the length of your ordeal. It is not the intensity of your ordeal. It is not the unfairness of it. That's not the issue. The issue to God in his mind is not your ease. It's your maturity. Any immersion, we need to see that God is forming Christ in us through it, by it, in it, and with it. By and through and in and with those circumstances, the circumstances of your ordeal, your immersion into trouble, God is using that to grow you, to mature you, to lead you forward to his glory. We really get a picture of that. How do we respond? Just like James calls us to respond. Rejoice. Rejoice. I don't think it means jump up and down with giddy glee and happiness, necessarily. But it means, I believe what God says. I believe that he's in the details. I believe that he's taking me where he wants me to go. And I believe then that I can rejoice. I can relax. I can let go. I can put my life in God's hands and say, I don't have to manipulate the circumstances. I don't have to escape my Haran today. I can rest in the greatness and the promise of God. And I can endure. And as I endure the journey itself will be transformed by hope. The ordeal itself will be transformed by that hope that I have in God's promises and in God's blessing down the way. The orientation of Scripture is this way. And a passage like this that is so often ignored in the preaching of Christian churches is something we've got to grab a hold of. God is not going to hit you with a wand and change all your circumstances overnight. You're not going to kiss a frog and find it to be a princess. Prince, how does that work? Something like that. <laughs> you know what I mean. It, it, it isn't this, this mystical miracle world where everything goes away. He's in the details. He's in the process. And we need to come to maturity and to faith to trust him in the process to develop into us what he wants to develop into us. So the question is a question of faith. I am excited to see Jacob's words in this passage. 
he is moving from a man who doesn't see God to a man who sees God in everything. He's a man who's not fighting his world, not fighting his circumstances, second-born. He's submitting to the will of God, and he endured Haran with great benefit. Your trials can be transformed by rejoicing patience, waiting for God to do what he wants to do in your life. The issue is will we trust his hand? Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we thank you for this passage and for the reminder of it. I pray that you will help your people to discern your truth. We've spent a considerable amount of time this morning to dig deeply into the nitty-gritty of this passage and to try to see what is behind it, to see your hand behind the events, to see you marching through the pages of Jacob's life and then to be reminded that you are marching through ours. God, I pray that you'll give us a sense of that. If there's anyone here with the sinful attitude that says, I don't matter to God, I pray that you'll chase it away and help them to turn in love to you and realize that you, they matter to you. They matter greatly. You love them like you love Jacob. If there's any attitude in our heart that is seeking to escape from trials rather than to honor you in them, I pray, God, that you'll mature us and help us to grow and take us through it. I plead, dear God, whatever you are doing in the lives of your people now as the Spirit moves, that you will continue to sanctify and transform us. And I pray for anyone that knows you not as Savior. Oh, God, may they come to know you in a personal way, to relate to you and to realize that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you are the creator and sustainer of all, but that you are also the God who loves them and longs for their redemption. Draw any such one to yourself, I pray this morning. We will thank you for what you're pleased to do. In Christ's name, amen.